Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all today. It's a start of a new series of sermons, uh, hidden in plain sight, a look at ten parables. Uh, and the parables we've chosen are in some way difficult, either difficult to understand or difficult to put into practice in your life. And of course, you do know, don't you, that you are meant to put into practice what you learn. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrea. Okay. <laughs> I need to warn you, uh, Andrea took two cocodes of all today. Uh, and she, I think she's a little bit spaced out. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, because that's actually one of the parables, isn't it? Isn't it? That's one of the parables. Which one is it? No, not the spaced out bit. The putting into practice what you hear thing. That's the parable of the two builders, isn't it? The man who built his house on the rock was heard from God and put it into practice. The guy who built his house on sand heard from God didn't, and of course his house collapsed. And so everything you hear on a Sunday morning or a small group or wherever, you're not just there to learn, that you are there to put it into practice. And some of the parables are either hard to learn, to understand, or hard to put into practice. Because they were written... 2,000 years ago, and Jesus had a very unique way of teaching. Sometimes he taught, like teaching, you know, he kind of told people things. But sometimes, with these parables, he told stories. And the great thing about the parables, these stories, is that people were meant to go away and think through. What was that about? What was he talking about? What did it mean? And what was I meant to do because of it? But because of 2,000 years have gone by, we sometimes miss the context in which they're told. We, we misunderstand stuff in those parables because they refer to things that we don't understand, such as in the parable today, which I'll tell you about. Uh, or they, they simply talk about things that we have. They just, I mean, they talk about farming. Any farmers here today? Not many. Okay, we've got one. Great. So, you know, things like this, there's, there's things about farming in there and all that kind of stuff. So we sometimes need to try and get a better understanding of the parables to, to start to understand them and get, put them into practice. So uh, we're looking at these two very simple parables this morning. Three lines, three sentences. And uh, it's a really simple parable. Really easy to understand, but really hard to put into practice. And that's where we're starting today. So let me just remind you what the parable said. Uh, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had and bought it. Let's just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for these parables. We want to thank you, Lord, for the way that they encourage us to think. They encourage us to uh, understand your purpose for our lives. And Lord, I pray that as we begin to understand these parables, that we will put them into practice in our life. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at uh, these three lines. There's one place I want to start. And most of the parables uh, have a very similar start To these two, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like. 
And then Jesus tells the parable. And so I just want to start there for a moment. What is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? What's Jesus referring to? Well, he's not talking about a place like the United Kingdom. What Jesus is talking about there is anywhere where the rule of God is made evident. Anywhere where his values, his purposes are being lived out. Now, hopefully, each and every one of you is a sign of the kingdom of God because you have put yourself under the rule of God. Got a lot of blank faces there, so maybe not. Uh, but that's, that's the hope, that each and every one of us are living under the rule of God. And that's a very important point, particularly for these two parables. See, sometimes it's easy to think that the kingdom of God is about the church, that the church is the kingdom of God. I wrote uh, an essay in my second year at Theological College on the kingdom of God. A fantastic essay. It really was. Uh, My tutor, though, disagreed, tore it apart. Uh, And um, I had to go and see her. uh, And uh, she was a formidable woman, a formidable intellect. And uh, she got me to think about actually what the kingdom of God was. And it was not long after the whole apartheid system had crashed in South Africa. Uh, And she said to me, she said, South Africa, the fall of apartheid. Is God's work being done there? And I said, well, yeah, because God's justice has been brought to bear upon that nation. And she said, is the kingdom of God there? Well, uh, yeah, probably. Of course it is. Because equality and justice and the removal of oppression is something that will happen in heaven. It's part of the kingdom of God. And even though the church was involved in it, it wasn't exclusively the church. The whole fall of apartheid was God's rule being brought to bear upon that nation. And his values being lived out in that nation. And so the kingdom of God is bigger than the church. It is anywhere where God is allowed to rule. And it might not be fully rule. But something of heaven is brought to earth. Something of his values, his justice, his peace, his grace, his love, his truth is brought to earth. And so the kingdom of heaven, whenever you read that phrase, just think about it as God's work in the world. It's not just the church. The church is an agent of the kingdom. It is not the kingdom. And so... When Jesus is telling these parables, he's talking about, well, what does God's rule on earth look like? And these two parables are all about that. And the two very simple parables, aren't they? They they indicate the value of the kingdom. We have a treasure buried in a field, and we have a pearl of great price. And the first thing we notice in both of these parables is that these are life-changing finds. The guy who's in the field, we don't know whether he's digging the field, we don't know who's doing in the field, we, absolutely, we know nothing about the field. We know nothing about the man. 
what we know is that he's found something of huge value. We've got the merchant traveling the world trying to find pearls. And he finds this one pearl that is a, the, the best pearl he's ever seen. The most valuable pearl he's ever come across. See, the, the first point that Jesus is making is that the kingdom of God is the most valuable thing you will ever discover in your life. The kingdom of God is the most valuable thing that will change your life. You can imagine, can't you, that guy in the field, probably he's digging the field, and as he's digging, he comes across this treasure. It says he is filled with joy, and we'll come on to that in a minute, but it says he is filled with joy. Why? Because he knows that this find will radically change his life. And of course, finding the kingdom of God should radically change your life. Because when you enter the kingdom of God, what you're saying is, I am no longer going to rule my life. I am no longer in control of my life. I'm going to put myself under the rule and control of God. Because if you are in his kingdom, he is the king and he determines what you do. Now for me, that's that. You know what, I balk a little bit at that. So I was born in 1961, so I'm a kind of child of the 60s. Uh, I never did the whole drugs and sex and rock and roll thing, at the, not in those years anyway. Uh, I know some of you did it in the 60s, but I was too young. Um, but you know, one of the key things about the 60s was that you, know, you were in control of your life. No one could tell you what to do. The man couldn't tell you what to do. You decided what you wanted to do. If you wanted to do drugs, you did drugs. It was a time of rebellion against all sorts of things. And that is our sinful nature. We are rebellious against God. And so to, to, for me to find that actually putting myself under God's rule and control is valuable, I'm like, ah, is it? And yet those of us who have done that have found it is the most incredible, life-changing thing you will ever do. To put yourself in his hands, under his control, under his rule and reign, where you are no longer on the throne of your life. You've put Jesus on the throne of your life. That's why we sometimes say Jesus is both our saviour and our Lord. Because you can make Jesus your saviour but not your Lord. Is it possible to do that? But these two parables are about the simple fact that you are putting yourself under the control of God. You are his, and his to do with as he pleases. It is valuable because it is life-changing. And why wouldn't it be the most life-changing thing in the world when you are coming to the King of Kings, the creator of all things, who knows you better than you know yourself, who knows your past, your present, and he knows your future, who has the plans and purposes in store for you. He knows everything that he needs to know about you. Why wouldn't it be the most life-changing, life-fulfilling, life-satisfying act but to put your control, the control of your life into his hands. It is hugely, 
transforming. Nothing will change your life like putting your life under the control of God. Nothing. As lovely in that first parable says that the guy who's doing the digging, he finds the treasure and then with great joy goes and sells everything he has. See, sometimes I'm reading that parable and I'm thinking, wow, do I really have to give up everything, Lord? You know, I'm not really sure I want to do that. See, you will truly give up everything you have when you discover the worth of the kingdom. And you will do it joyfully. And the people of God should be marked by one thing above all other things, and that's joy. Because we have discovered love, real love, true love, passionate love. And we've discovered truth, the only truth. And we've discovered God who is the only God and is the creator of all things. Why shouldn't we be filled with joy? It should be the mark of every time we get together that our meetings, our small groups, our prayer times are filled with joy. Why? Because we come to a God who loves us passionately. Who has given us his Holy Spirit. We know what's going to happen at the end of all time. We know what's going to happen. We know the end of the story. We all get to go to heaven. Why shouldn't we be filled with joy? Thank you. We should be the most joyful people. God, it's not always though, is it? eh? We've we've all been to church meetings where you think, that was dreadful. It was the most boring meeting I've ever been to in my life. Sometimes we lose sight of the worth of the kingdom. I guess like you, some of you came to faith kind of later in life. Uh, I was 21. I know the thing that I remember about those early months and years of being a Christian was I was just happy. I was unbelievably happy. Even though my life was a bit of a mess at the time, I was an adult and all those kind of things. But I, I just had joy like I'd never known before. I look back at that and I remember that. Now, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you could look at your life now and think, hmm, where's that joy gone? It kind of just dissipates a bit, doesn't it? You know? Life throws itself at you, things happen, you get sidetracked in your thinking. You lose sight of the value of the kingdom of God. See, we need to keep coming back to the life-transforming power of God in our lives. When we truly hand over control to him, that's when we discover joy. The more you try to scrabble control back from God, that's when you lose your joy. And for the control freaks in you here, I know that's hard to hear. But if you want to take control of your life, you will lose your joy. Joy comes when you discover and rediscover and keep on rediscovering the rule of God in your life. Will you hand over control to him? That's where joy comes from. 
But let's get on to uh, one thing I want to just talk about very briefly before we get to the main point. And uh, this point is this, that faith is not a string of pearls. It is one pearl. The Christian life is not a string of pearls. See, that merchant, he probably had a, a number of pearls. He's going around buying and selling pearls. That's what his job was. And pearls were hugely valuable in Jesus' time, far more so than now. They were much rarer than now. There's a, a, a queen a, a, a just before Jesus' time who had a pearl that was valued at the equivalent of today, 27 billion pounds. So they're hugely valuable. And he had a number of these. And he sells all his pearls for this one. What do I mean by that? In Jesus' time, and especially now in our time, we like to collect little bits of ideas and faith and philosophy from all sorts of different things and string it together and think, that's what I believe. Christians do it all the time. We pick and choose Bible verses that we like to focus on and discard others. We dabble with other things, other kind of spiritualities. Yoga, for instance. I might touch a few nerves here. Sorry, in advance. Now, I know a number of Christians who are long-standing Christians, passionate people, who got into yoga and are now no longer with Jesus. That's not the case for everyone. But the moment you start putting your faith and trust in other things other than Jesus, then you're going to wander away at some point. You see, if you're trying to make faith a string of pearls and ideas and self-help stuff that you've picked up from all sorts of different places, you're missing the one pearl of great price. And that is the point of the story. There is only one pearl. There is only Jesus. There's not lots of little bits of ideas that you can pick up and stick together and make into something. There is only Jesus, and there is only the kingdom of God. And God is calling you into the kingdom of God, out of the kingdom of darkness. And to try and string something out of the darkness and into the light is only going to drag you back into the darkness. Don't mess around with other stuff. Focus on the pearl, the one pearl of great price. Who is Jesus? That's a little sidetrack. But the main point of these two stories is that they both, the man in the field and the merchant, they both gave everything they had in order to, to get the treasure and the pearl. The man in the field. Finding treasure in a field is not unusual, particularly in Jesus' time. See, one of the things that we don't realise is that in Jesus' time, they didn't have Nat West. Perhaps that's a good thing. Uh, they didn't have banks like we had banks. And they had invading armies coming in and stealing things all the time. You only have to look through the whole book of the Old Testament and realise that that was like a whole episode of people invading Israel. The safest place to keep your treasure was to dig a hole in the ground and put it in there. That was the safest place. 
It was actually rabbinical teaching to do that in order to keep the treasures of Israel safe. The problem was, if you're anything like my wife, you forget where you put stuff. Whenever we go on holiday, she hides her jewellery from burglars. And later on, we come back, she says, where's those earrings? I'm like, I don't know, you hid them. Where's my, where's, where's my necklace? Where's my bracelet? And years later, she finds them. The other problem with burying your treasure in the ground and not telling anyone is if you die, no one gets it. And so all over Israel, people would accidentally dig up stuff that people had buried to keep safe. It was not unheard of. And so this guy, he does the right thing. He puts it back. The field, the, uh, the, the treasure belongs to the guy who owns the field. He buys the field. And you can ask about the morality of that bit, but that's unimportant in the story. And he gets the field. But in order to do that, he has to sell everything he has. And it's emphasized in the second parable. The merchant finds this one pearl. And he goes away and sells Everything he has in order to get this one pill. They both impoverish themselves in order to get what they want. See, salvation is free, it's an act of grace. You enter into a relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. But when you discover the value of that, you joyfully want to give away everything that you are in order to live that out. Paul puts it this way. Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. See, this story isn't, isn't about selling your stuff. It is about totally surrendering all of your life to God. Giving all that you are to him. That's what this story is about. Total surrender to God. See, when you discover the joy of being in the kingdom, you will joyfully just give it all away for Jesus. You'll surrender everything to him. You'll surrender your job, your reputation, your family, your future, your past and your present. You'll surrender everything to him and for him because of the joy and the worth of knowing Jesus. That's what those two parables are about. A really simple truth. But man, is it hard to do. I don't know about you, but I am constantly putting myself back under my control. Instead of allowing Jesus to be in control. I'm constantly forgetting the value of knowing Jesus and allowing other things to crowd in. See, we have to be totally surrendered to Jesus with everything that we have 
It is all or nothing with that. We cannot have any shortcuts. See, the thing is, in that passage that Paul talks about, he says, you know, I count all those things that I had, and, and Paul had a privileged upbringing. He had the best education. Presumably, to get that, he had a wealthy family. He says, I count all of that as rubbish. You know, in English, we don't get the force of these verses. In Greek, these are kind of very harsh, coarse words. In Greek, the word for rubbish is more of a four-letter word that we would use, that you might hear on the streets outside. I count it all as for the sake of knowing Jesus. See, whatever it is you value in your life, and I don't care what that is, if it's not Jesus, it's rubbish. You know, I love my family. I spent last weekend with my kids and son-in-laws and we had a great time. That's rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus is the only pearl of great price. And we're meant to lay down everything else for him. How are you getting on with that? It's not easy, is it? We have to constantly come back to what is the value of knowing Jesus? What is the value of the kingdom? And realizing that everything else counts for nothing. See, all too easy, all too often, Christians simply make Jesus a hobby. And you do hobbies because of what you get out of it. You enjoy it, it's a bit of fun. Or you enjoy hanging out with certain people, certain types of people. We do hobbies for fun because of what we get out of it. You know, being a Christian is all about what you give. It's about living your life for Jesus. Giving all of your life to Jesus. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. He said, uh, the Christian life is, uh, when you come to Jesus, it's, it's a bit like God's going to renovate the house for you. He redecorates, he puts on new doors and new windows and makes it all look nice. And you're happy with that because it looks better. But then he starts knocking walls down. And then he starts building extensions. And you're unhappy with that because it's inconvenient and it's hard work and it's disruptive. And he says this, C.S. Lewis. He says, we expected him to make a nice little cottage for us to live in. But what he was doing was building a palace for him to live in. See, the whole point about giving your life to Jesus is that you are moving away from your small ambitions for your life. And entering into the bigger ambitions of what God wants to do for you. You know, and what we have with our vision here at Christchurch is something of that. See, our vision isn't about making Christchurch bigger. Our vision is about transforming Southport for Jesus. And that is a kingdom vision, not a church vision. And to be able to transform Southport for Jesus needs a people who are 
dedicated and sold out for the kingdom. It needs a kingdom people to build the kingdom. It doesn't need church people. Church people are the worst. It needs kingdom people. People who are completely sold out and surrendered to Jesus. People who are prepared to to put in extra time and extra money when it's needed and to put extra effort in. Who are prepared to lay down what they want for their lives in order to serve Jesus for his purposes and his kingdom. And to do that joyfully, not through gritted teeth. See, we cannot treat this whole thing as a hobby where we just dip in and dip out when we feel like. If you are sold out for Jesus, you are sold out for his purposes. And together, as this family here at Christchurch, we have discerned that his purpose is the transformation of Southport. And to be able to do that, we need to take these two parables seriously. We need to be prepared to give our whole selves for this. You can't just dip into the bits that you like and hope that no one notices when you dip out of the other bits. See, the kingdom of God is no hobby. It's a lifestyle that demands of us to have Big ambitions for God. Because he's not building a nice little cottage for you. He is building a palace for him. And he wants to rule in your life. And when you discover how valuable that is, then you will give it all away freely and joyfully. And so it requires that we go into this either all or nothing to go into this wholeheartedly, that we totally surrender ourselves to God in every aspect of our lives. We need to totally surrender our hearts to God. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. In other words, we need to make Jesus the absolute primary, number one love of our life. Nothing else, no one else. Jesus is the primary love of our life. If someone else is your first love, then you'll never be able to serve Jesus wholeheartedly. We need to surrender our minds. In Romans 12 uh, verse 2, Paul says, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that goes back to that whole string of pearl things, you know, where you can't just pick and choose ideas that you like. We are surrendering ourselves to the mind of Christ, where we are thinking his thoughts, where we are putting ourselves into his mind. Where we don't simply want to choose what we believe, but we surrender to him, our mind. We surrender our bodies. Romans 12 verse 1 talks about, says this, I urge you, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. To present your body means that everything you own 
is his. That you are willing to be completely obedient to God. To go where he says you should go. To do whatever he says you should do. As we've started to talk about uh, our vision here and to think about the things that we can do, people have been saying to me, I've had this idea for a long time about doing this kind of missional activity or that. And people have held on to ideas for a long time. You know what? If you've offered your bodies as a living sacrifice, God is requiring obedience. And quite often that means immediate obedience. That you don't just get an idea from God and say, okay, Lord, I'll pray for that for a few years. And then I'll think about it for a few years. And hopefully by then you'll have forgotten about this idea and I can get on with my life. Sometimes he requires us to hear from him and to immediately obey. And we don't like that because that cuts across our diary, doesn't it? I've got plans. And now you're breaking through and telling me I've got to do something different. If we are completely surrendered in our physical realm, then we need to be prepared to be obedient at the drop of a hat. And finally, we need to surrender our soul. We all know that the, you know, the foundational truth of our faith is that Jesus died for us so that we may be forgiven and by his grace receive everlasting life. Yet all too often, Christians are trying to work for God's approval and salvation. You know, when you surrender your soul, you're truly at rest. When it says in the Psalms, be still and know that I am God, that is a surrendering of your soul. It's stepping back from the busyness of life and saying, Lord, I'm yours. Eugene Peterson, who's an incredible theologian, really, a very practical theologian, says this, that busyness is a sickness of the soul. And I know I'm saying that to 120 busy people. It's a sickness of our society that people need to be busy. You know, I'm with church leaders all the time. One thing that they all love to boast about is how busy they are. Where in scripture does it say to be busy? It says to be fruitful. And that's a completely different thing. See, when you surrender your soul, you're surrendering yourself into the way that God does things. And God doesn't want you running around hairless, trying to chase different things, trying to achieve salvation, trying to achieve approval. To surrender your soul means that you want to rest in him. Because he's in control, not you. If you surrender your soul to God, you will find peace. You will find rest. You will find nourishment. All those things that most Christians seem to lose. You will find when you surrender your soul. Let's stand for a moment. And would the band like to come up please? I'm going to pray for us. Um, 
there will be people over by the windows who are going to be prepared to pray for you. No matter what it is that you want to respond to today, they're going to be there to pray for you. Maybe they can move there now just so that it's obvious who they are. Um, I've been wondering what God might really want to do if there's specific things. And I think that last thing is something that some of you really need to engage with. That in your running around being busy, you're losing sight of what God wants to do with you. Busyness is not an excuse for not doing what God wants you to do. God is calling you to surrender your soul to him, to rest in him. And if you're finding life busy and unfruitful, then maybe there's something inside that's driving that. That you just need to surrender to God. You need God maybe to heal something in there. So why not get prayer for it? I think also God wants to go after physical healing today. And uh, whatever it is that's going on for you physically that, that you know you're struggling with, whether it's pain or sickness, why not receive prayer for that? For some of you, that is a surrendering of your mind. Because in your mind you're thinking, well, how, why is it that God does heal some and doesn't heal others? And, all right, and when I've sorted all that out in my mind, then I will go forward for healing. God doesn't work that way. If God is in control and God is sovereign and God is king, he chooses to do what he wants to do. You don't get to choose. So maybe you should surrender your mind in this. So let me encourage you, whatever you have going on physically right now, why not receive prayer? See what God might do in your body to bring healing. Just pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you are king. I want to thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to step into your kingdom, to put ourselves under your control, to put ourselves under your reign. And Lord, I thank you that when we do that, we find joy. And when we do that, we find rest. When we do that, we find purpose. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to surrender it all to you. To give all to you. Without holding anything back. In Jesus' name. Amen.